All right, so welcome everyone to Drisha's Full Programming. And this is the first part of a four-part uh, session course on living and dying with dignity, themes in halakha and medical decision-making by Rabbi Danielle Riffman. Rabbi Riffman is the Rosh Kolel of the Drisha Summer Kolel and has taught Talmud and halakha at Drisha for close to 20 years. He holds a PhD in, her you might have to help me with that word, Herman hermeneutics, I apologize, from Bar-Ilan University and received his rabbinic ordination and an MA in Tanakh from Yeshiva University. During the year, he teaches at Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies in Jerusalem and at the Institute for Advanced Torah Studies at Bar-Ilan. We encourage you to ask questions throughout by either unmuting yourself or by writing them in the chat box or uh, by commenting on Facebook Live. Uh, we value your active participation, so please feel free to uh, turn on your videos. And without delay, I'll turn this to um, Rabbi Riffman. Thank you very much. Um, okay, this uh, this class is a bit of an experiment. Um, it involves uh, some topics that I've taught before, but also uh, some angles and also some material that uh, I'm going to be for the first time. Um, so you're all a little bit of my guinea pigs. Um, as we talk about experimentation in medicine, uh, we'll, we'll use that metaphor both uh, literally and figuratively. Um, but I do want you um, please encourage you, uh, first of all, to turn your cameras. It's much easier to teach when I see people, uh, even in miniature, than, uh, than just blank screens. Um, please um, do uh, jump in as you wish in terms of questions. If I, uh, I'll also make time for questions if you want to wait until uh, we get to a break in the class. Um, Lastly, I want to just say I realize that a lot of these issues um, carry a lot of emotional baggage. Um, some of you may have had uh, personal experiences making uh, medical decisions, um, hopefully not for yourselves, but possibly, uh, possibly for loved ones. Um, these are very fraught issues. Um, obviously, I encourage you to share. Um, if there are specific halacha questions, specific practical questions that you want to uh, share with me or want to ask, uh, I'm happy to take those probably out of class time. Um, if there are specific, um, if there are specific experiences you want to share, I'm happy to make time for that as well. Obviously, if it doesn't take up too much of the limited time that we have together. Uh, pleasure to see uh, familiar faces. Um, and, uh, and let's get started. The first topic that I want to talk about, um, I, I, I thought a lot about how to arrange the material. And the first topic I want to talk about is the one that focuses most squarely on the issue of dignity, um, which is the topic of the course. And we're going to kind of branch out from there and situate dignity in a, um, in a network of other concepts that surround it. Um, but this is the sugya, uh, or this is the halachic topic where dignity comes into play and is maybe expressed by the halachic sources most clearly, and therefore it's the one I want to start with. Um, the issue of end-of-life care um, has gotten much more complicated in a modern medical setting uh, for the simple reason that we are able to extend life artificially um, to a far greater degree than uh, even 50 years ago, certainly than 100 years ago. 
Um, the technique, of course, that led to uh, extension of life, we say artificially, but uh, we kind of take these things for granted now, um, is the advent of mechanical ventilation at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and with the improvement of mechanical ventilation over time, uh, the, 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 the possibility of extending life uh, became something that we kind of took for granted. Um, and as technology has improved, as drugs have improved, as other techniques for helping people deal with chronic conditions have, uh, have improved over time, um, the questions have only uh, gotten more and more persistent. Um, one of the things we're not going to address in this, uh, in this class is the definition of death and the question of, uh, of, of the brain death standard and whether that's an acceptable standard according to Jewish tradition or not. Okay, we're not going to deal with that topic, even if we're going to skirt it at a few places. But obviously, uh, mechanical ventilation raised important questions about how you define death. One of the things that we will address is when so much of sustaining life uh, becomes something that is artificial, artificial means something that's not part of our bodies, um, at what point do we become more machine than person? Okay, that's going to be an important question that we ask because, of course, um, when you're making medical decisions, the person is the, the focus or should be the focus of the kind of questions that you're asking. Um, in halacha, of course, we address questions um, based on sources. Halacha is a, a legal system that's very text-based. Uh, we go back to traditional sources. We look for precedents. We look for material that's relevant to questions that we are dealing with uh, in the here and now. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit, uh, not so much the, the bigger picture of halacha and why halacha is so text-based, but when you look for earlier sources that are, of course, uh, situated in and addressing a very different kind of, uh, of, 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 of medical context, um, how you take those sources and make them relevant to what's going on now. Um, okay. One of the things that I like about this topic, uh, and uh, arrange the sources as you may, you almost invariably begin, every, every single person who teaches a class uh, begins with this text. Um, and it raises, even before we get into the other sources, it raises questions about the kind of halachic text that we're looking for. Because of course, when you look at the halachic tradition, uh, some of the texts are what you expect from a legal corpus. They say, here's the case and here's the ruling and maybe they give you a rationale. Um, but the Talmud is a very varied kind of text and it contains different kinds of, um, different kinds of literary material, some of which is not legal at all or doesn't seem to be legal at first blush. So here we go. Um, I'll start reading and at some point, if I get tired or uh, I'm tired, you, you get tired of hearing my voice, you can volunteer to read as well. And let me just share screen. Um, just so you know, when you can see what I'm doing, uh, I have a second screen here so that I can look at you and look at the sources at the same time. But if I'm looks, looks like I'm looking away, that's where I'm looking. Okay, here we go. Um, I'll read the sources in English uh, because I don't assume that you all have facility with uh, with Talmudic Aramaic, but uh, but feel free to follow along uh, in the Aramaic on the uh, on the right hand side. On the day of Rabbi Yehuda, the prince's death, the prince was uh, the rabbinic and political leader uh, of the uh, of of the community in Israel uh, in the second uh, mid second century CE or late second century CE. On the day of Yehuda, the prince's death, the rabbis decreed a public fast and offered prayers for heavenly mercy. 
Rehuda the prince's handmaid ascended the roof and prayed. The immortals, i.e. angels, desire Rehuda the prince to join them. And the mortals desire Rehuda the prince to remain with them. May it be the will of God that the mortals may overpower the immortals. Okay, you get what's going on so far? Rehuda the prince is dying. They're praying that he live. His maid goes up to the roof, realizes there's a cosmic battle over his soul, and prays to God that the mortals, i.e. the rabbis, win out and Rehuda and Asi remain alive. When, however, she saw how often he resorted to the toilet, painfully taking off his tefillin and putting them on, she prayed, may it be the will of the Almighty the immortal, that the immortals may overpower the mortals. She changes her prayer when? When she sees her Behuda Hanasi's experience about going to the toilet and having to take off his tefillin uh, every time he goes to the toilet, because of course you can't go into uh, the lavatory uh, with, uh, with your tefillin, with your phylacteries on. As the rabbis incessantly continued their prayers for heavenly mercy, she took a jar and threw it down from the roof to the ground. For a moment, they ceased praying, and the soul of Rehuda the prince departed to its eternal rest. Okay, what does she do? She distracts them by throwing a vessel down to the ground. It makes a lot of noise. They stop praying, and at that moment, that decisive moment, when they stop praying, the, the, their, their prayers are kind of holding back his death, and at that moment, he dies. Okay, um, you all have done literary analysis in various academic contexts. What do you make of this story? Okay, first of all, is, is this a legal story? What kind of story is this? And why does the Talmud put it here? Go I'll ahead. Okay, yeah. I, I think that what the Talmud is showing us here is that this could be a very much a not legal thought and not cerebral thought. This is on the part of somebody who certainly doesn't know the text, but is responding from some kind of gut instinctive place. Okay, there is something very um, antinomian or anti-legal about this in the sense that who's the primary actor in the story? His handmaid, who is the only non-rabbinic figure in the story, right? So, so that alone, uh, we of course know of her, I don't know, I say of course, she happens to show up in a number of other stories in the Talmud. She's a known figure, um, like virtually all women in the Talmud, uh, but those who repeat, those who appear in multiple stories and those who don't, she has not given her own name. Um, but nonetheless, she's a prominent figure um, and, and knowledgeable about certain things, but certainly not a rabbinic figure. And the fact that she's the primary figure in the story, the only one who, changes or evolves in the course of the story suggests that there is something antinomian about this. In other words, why would this be framed as a story rather than as a legal ruling? Because she's not in a position to get a legal ruling, right? In other words, there is something about this story, the values that it embodies, the behavioral patterns that it suggests, that is somehow outside bounds of law. That, of course, raises an important question about the Talmud in general. What kind of document is the Talmud that contains something antinomian, something anti-legal? Who are these rabbis anyway? Or, or who is the editor of this document who's containing something legal and anti-legal? But that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we're going to do, at least for the moment. Um, there's something anti-legal about it. There's something that depends on some other discourse, some other value system, some other way of thinking about the world than a strict, this is, this is obligated, this is not obligated, this is permitted, this is not permitted. 
There's a way of breaking out of a kind of basic dichotomy of legal thought here that's being embodied in the story. Okay. I think, Danny, right. yeah. um, what it's also telling us is that legalities can be derived from the common experience. Here you have the immortals, you think the pool was greater, but the pool is not greater as long as we can keep focus and keep connecting to people here. Once that is stopped by a very uh, random activity, she didn't do anything fabulous, she just threw a jar, a jar down, then the battle is lost. So there is a connection here that I think could come to a legality as to how we deal with people who are in their last throes of life. Okay, so, so Mary raises two points. One, um, first of all, there's a sense of um, the, 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 the not legal aspect of the story is in some sense a human connection, or we could call it an emotional connection. Um, when the rabbis are praying, what is the value of prayer? There's, there's a connection there. We think of prayer as something between you and God. But of course, the connection is also between the rabbis and their leader, right? So, so they're praying to God, but they're praying about their leader, and that connection is somehow holding him back. Then there's a point about whether this story, non-legal though it may be, can serve in a sense as an inspiration for a law, as a precedent for a law, which is of course the direction that we're going in. In other words, there's something very commonsensical about her behavior, at least she thinks it's commonsensical, whether we agree or not is a separate question, which we'll address. But, um, but, but of course, they're, they're, so that, that commonsensical impulse or her commonsensical instinct then becomes the basis for law, okay? Other thoughts before I give kind of a more formal framework to this? Feel free to do some literary analysis. The, the fascinating image here, of course, is the vessel, all right, and the rooftop, which are the only two physical symbols, and, and it's feline, but we'll talk about feline in a minute. Um, the, thank you. The vessel and the rooftop, the rooftop positions her in that liminal space between heaven and earth, right? It's as high as you can go as a human being. Um, and the vessel, of course, signifies or symbolizes in some sense human life. Right in the Kabbalistic sense, uh, the the or, or even uh, in some sense pre-Kabbalistic, um, the the breaking of a vessel, uh, the, the vessel is is that which holds the human life, and the breaking of the vessel is is therefore the the releases uh, that that spiritual content and allows him to allows him to ascend to heaven. Um, next question for you. The, the, to prompt you into thinking about this. Um, when we think about the legal impact of the story, right? You, you, let's, let's not get all legal for a second. Let's, let's talk minimally about what the ultimate message of the story is, or if we can use a kind of loaded term, the moral of the story. Does the story have a moral? And if so, what is it? And how do we know? Uh, Danny? It seems yeah. that the uh, one of the questions the story raises is, what do we do about suffering? And uh, what is the value of suffering? So from okay. one point of view, uh, 
the commonsensical view is uh, you want to get somebody whom you love and respect, etc., out of a position of suffering. And that's what she's responding to. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe the, the, uh, the students are uh, praying for that as well, but they don't realize that they are uh, uh, um, preventing uh, the rabbi from, from dying. Yeah. Okay. So, so let, let's start. Uh, this is, I, I'm, I'm still, I have a lot of experience with Zoom, but, but my, my Zoom teaching experience is, is still, uh, still evolving. So here's what we're going to try. We're going to try for a moment to do, to use the whiteboard. Uh, those of you who have been in class with me before know that I'm a very visual teacher. It is extremely distressing for me not to have a whiteboard behind me. And even when I do, it's not so easy for you to see. So we're going to try using this virtual whiteboard. Okay. What I board text. Okay, here we go. Emily says suffering. Okay. Um, is one of the key values in the story. And by value, I simply mean a concept that's floating out there in the story, that thing, what we think about it, okay? Suffering is definitely out there. We see it when Rabbi Huda Anasi is going to the bathroom and has to take off his tefillin. Now, here's an interesting question. What is the suffering that she's seeing? And now we can divide suffering into two. Here's where things get a little more complicated. I'm gonna draw two arrows, one this way and one this way. Okay, those of you who've been, again, those who've been in my class know that I, not only do I love whiteboards, I love colors. We're not gonna get too color specific here. <laughs> uh, if we do more, more sophisticated charting, then we'll maybe do some more, uh, yeah, okay, here we go. Um, what, what, we're gonna divide suffering into two categories. No, it's not to text suffering could be physical it could be physical it could be what we call pain which is physical it could be emotional which is maybe what we would call anguish we're gonna talk a lot about pain <laughs> Uh, or suffering, because suffering is, of course, a key component in medical decision making, um, and and uh, even more important, I would say, in halacha uh, and halachic decision making that it is in general bioethics. Suffering is definitely one of the values in the story. There's never competing value, well, it, which which at least in this story is competing with it, and will often be competing with it, which is. Mercy. Say mercy. Hmm. Um, why is mercy competing with suffering? I'm sorry, I, 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 I twisted the question. Mercy yeah, yeah. Is, not, is not competing with it. Uh, mercy is uh, uh, the value, uh, again, uh, I guess it's uh, uh, competing with, with prayer or with the prolonging of life. Ah, life. Okay, so so suffering is going to be suffering is going to be competing with life. Okay, that's that's going to be one of the key tensions that we see throughout these sources. Okay, so when we think about the values of suffering and life, 
they are, I use this, the, this double arrow to signify tension. Um, these are gonna be in tension, okay? And the story already embodies that tension. Um, Rabbi Danasi is suffering and suffering is sometimes in tension with life. You have a choice. You can be alive and suffer or you can die and relieve your suffering. But suffering as something negative, oh, here's where colors come into play. Suffering as something negative, um, uh, how do I do this? Suffering as something negative, we'll do negative in black. No, I don't know how to change the color of this. Suffering as something negative is gonna be in tension with life as something positive, okay? Those two values, I think we can assess fairly safely. That suffering is negative, life is positive. Those two things are simply going to be in conflict a great deal of the time. Um, before I put other values on the board, I wanna ask you again, how do we get to the moral of the story? Or more to the point, when you draw a moral from a story, what are you in effect doing? You're flattening it out. Right, you're you're ignoring the specifics of the situation. We're no longer when you when you draw moral from the story. We're no longer talking about Yehudanasi. We're no longer talking about his maid or the rabbis or the angels or even prayer. Right, we're we're flattening it out and talking. We're broadening it and talking about a much more abstract set of circumstances. But the first thing you have to do when you draw moral is you have to figure out in a story there are lots of characters who's right. Who wins, so to speak? Who's the hero or heroine of the story, right? So who is it? Based on what Michelle said, it, it's gotta be her, right? But is that true? Does it have to be her? Is she the heroine of the story? And if so, how do we know? Isn't everybody's takeaway different? From the Couldn't you have different takeaways from the story? You could, right? You could empathize with Rabbi Hudanasi, who of course is the, the object of so much tension, but but never actually gets to have his own say. You could empathize with the, the, the other rabbis who are praying, right? The, the, again, the, the, what makes us non-legal is the fact that there's no one authority figure. One of the distinctive features of stories is the fact that you have so many characters um, often no one of whom is totally in control and each of whom has their different perspective, they can, you know, you can draw different messages. But let's try to draw a moral from the story because that's what we're gonna have to end up doing. Who is the hero or heroine of the story? And if it's, if you wanna make a case for somebody else, please do. But if it's Rabbi Hudanasi's maid, why is she the heroine? Why is she the heroine? She relieves the suffering. Okay, so you're already assigning a value to suffering versus life and saying when there's a tension of suffering versus life, suffering wins, right? But, but, but how did you get that? Maybe she's wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe she did something bad. She has the last say, right? That's important. Uh, meaning the rabbis don't don't get to yell at her, or at least the narrator of the story doesn't depict the rabbis yelling at her if they figure it out at all. Um, and, and the bottom line is the narrate that the editor of the Talmud has put the story has framed the story in a way to make her the central character. If you were filming this, the camera would be on her. The rabbis would be background noise. The angels, to the extent that you depicted them, would be background noise. It would always be on her. 
So the fact that she's the heroine of the story, so to speak, the active character tells us in a sense what the moral of the story is going to be. And as Michelle said, suffering is at least sometimes going to take precedence over life. I think there's another point. The, the fact that the main activity that the chief um, elite intellectual rabbi is capable of is a toilet activity and that the um, his dignity, which is another, obviously the title of this, is going to be taking off his tefillin and that causes him pain. It, it I shouldn't say reduces it. It, it the... It, it, it circumscribes it to a very concrete, limited focus that is hardly what we associate with rabbinic activity. Okay, there, there is definitely a sense, there, there are a couple of things about the story that are a little surprising. If this were gonna be the basis, as it will actually, for a whole body of literature about what kind of care we have to provide to dying patients, um, there are a couple of details that jump out as being kind of incongruous, right? Going to the bathroom and taking off tefillin, right? Th 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 those are kind of so um, so um, banal, so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that, 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 that you're kind of surprised that that's, that that's what they're talking about. Like that's the topic of conversation. That's the, that's the great tension in the story. Um, that's definitely one surprising thing. Um, the other is, of course, that they're talking about prayer, right? These are, uh, as Michelle said, the intellectual elite, and yet what they're engaged in is a kind of um, emotional uh, activity, which is not about intellect at all. It's about, well, what's it about? It's about, as Mary suggested, a connection to their leader. It's about a connection to God. Um, we don't actually know per se why they were doing what they were doing or even what the content of their prayer was, except in a very general sense. So we're going to have to think about prayer as well and the significance of prayer in the story. But let's put these two things uh, on, the, on our table and start with dignity, okay, which we'll have to define. And opposite dignity, I want to put something which is about prayer, but not just about prayer, because of course, prayer is a fairly limited topic. We could talk for at least a class about praying for the sick, but that topic doesn't get us very far in terms of bioethics. Um, when you pray, what do you pray for? What, what kinds of things uh, are worth praying for? What kinds of things are... Um, are um, effective to pray for. A friend of mine just wrote an article after the election. Um, if the votes are all counted, is it still worth it to pray for the outcome, right? Which is actually a question that comes up in the Mishnah, right? <laughs> if something has already happened, you say, you hear, you, you hear a siren in the distance, you say, oh gee, I hope that's not anybody I know, right? Does that make sense? The event already happens, right? Does it make, make sense to pray for something that already happened? Not our issue. Um, Rather than talking about prayer, what can we talk about? And also in a way that encapsulates what Rabbi Yudanasi's May does, which is both prayer and also something that disrupts prayer. I wanna talk about agency, okay? And agency also has two components to it. Agency on the one hand is action, okay? Doing something. There are a lot of things that we can do to help the um, 
to help uh, a, a patient who's in the uh, who's, who's on his or her deathbed. Um, I also want to use agency. We're kind of jumping the gun here since we don't see it so much in the story or a little bit to talk about choice. When you talk about agency, um, sometimes it's a matter of doing and not doing, but sometimes it's simply a matter of feeling like you have agency, even if you choose not to use it. Rabbi Huda Nasi's maid chooses to do something and then acts on it. And therefore she's the central agent in the story. And therefore she becomes the focus of all of our legal questions of what can we do, what can we not do, when do we exercise choice, when do we not have the right to exercise a certain choice, when does law bind us to a certain decision. Um, dignity is really more about the object of our analysis or the person who we're treating. Here, the issue of dignity belongs to whom? To Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. He's the one who, and this word, maybe the bathroom comes into it. He's the one who has to remove his tefillin when he's going to the bathroom. He may be in physical pain. He certainly, or he seems to be in emotional anguish as well. Um, that's something that, um, I feel like maybe we should have moved these terms around. Okay, maybe we'll have to rearrange this. I don't, I don't want to play with this too much right now. Um, the dignity should be associated with suffering or dignity is to some extent um, opposed to suffering. Okay, again, we have a kind of point of tension here between dignity and suffering. What is the significance of suffering, at least as it appears in this story? The suffering is not just about his physical pain or his emotional pain, because it's really actually not specified in what way he's suffering, but she sees that he's suffering and that's bad. What's bad about it? Michelle suggested that what that does is take away his dignity. We think about dignity, one of the things that first comes to our minds, does come to your minds, is the bathroom, <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, there's something very um, human about the need to relieve oneself. It's something that we all have to do. We all have to do it every day. You can't get around it. Um, it's so, humdrum, it's so basic that we don't often think about it. And yet that's kind of the, the, the baseline human need that we all have. And dignity describes so much about what we do when we relieve ourselves that, that, that it comes up actually quite frequently in, in uh, not only rabbinic literature, but many other, um, many other uh, areas, uh, many other people who write about dignity. Um, for example, uh, the need for privacy in the bathroom is self-understood. A way to shame someone, a way to take away their dignity is to, uh, is to remove their privacy or barge in on them at the moment when that's happening. Um, and therefore, the, the, the bathroom image actually is, is, is an important signifier here in terms of indicating that dignity is a central component in the story. Okay. Um, Let's just talk about dignity for a minute and the way it interacts with the other uh, components in the story. And then we'll come back and actually start going through the first steps of turning this story into a legal component. Because when we think about dignity, which is gonna be of course the central focus of all the issues that we discuss, um, 
dignity is a hot topic uh, or has become a, a kind of catchphrase, especially I would say in the last say 30 years um, in legal circles, in bioethical circles, in all sorts of kinds of discourse. And as soon as you dip your toe into the discourse of dignity in all of these different areas, um, you discover that dignity can mean very many things to very many different people. Um, any of you familiar with the literature? Any of you familiar with this topic? If you are, you can raise your hand or, or uh, text me or email me later. Yeah, yeah, Elle, do you wanna weigh in? Do you wanna? Well, I, I was a hospice chaplain and- um, Fascinating. What, what you're talking about certainly brings up a lot of memories for me, not only caring for patients, but also my mother at the end of her life it's not only the dignity of privacy, but it's the dignity of function. Because at the end of their lives, frequently people are incontinent and it's so shameful to them because they're adults, but their bodies are behaving like they're babies. And, and it's a really tender topic for, for most people, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, first of all, I, I mean, hospice is obviously something that we're going to address and, and, and lack of function um, is a critical element, which we don't, which, which again, seems very basic, but is also um, or, or kind of very um, banal, but is really actually quite central to the, to the notion of human dignity. One of the things I would say for starters is um, like, um, who's the Supreme Court justice who said, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it, right? Yeah. We all have very powerful, very potent images or very potent associations with the word dignity, right? So the need to define it or the need to kind of classify it seems, seems kind of counterintuitive. What do you mean? I know what it is, right? And I know when somebody's dignity is being violated you realize the complexity when you realize how many associations you have with it. And suddenly you realize if dignity means so many different things, well, then is it really a useful term at all? We would not be the first to suggest if we were gonna have a whole extended discussion about this, which we don't really have the luxury of time doing, though maybe we'll, we'll, we will definitely come back to it at various points and, and, and hash out some of the, some of the finer points. Um, for example, in my in in uh, my my uh, bioethics class in graduate school, um, when you just dis we discussed dignity, and at a certain point, it it, it became uh, almost a joke, right? Dignity can mean anything, so is it really a useful term at all? I want to say that it is a useful term, simply as as indicated simply by the fact that we keep using it, right? If we if if it weren't a useful term, we would stop using it and find a more specific, more useful term. But the fact that that we keep using it means that it says something that's not really captured by anything else. So what we're going to have to do is figure out not only what dignity means, but why we feel so drawn to it. And of course, when dignity is being violated, what is that? The simplest thing to say is, yeah, I also suggested shame, right? When you, when you take away someone's dignity, that's shame. And you therefore, you get a sense of what dignity means when you realize when it's being taken away. Um, the significance of dignity here um, is, I think, captured in this kind of amorphous space of pain and anguish 
uh, which again, the Talmud doesn't really specify. What is he experiencing? What is he suffering? What, or, or really more to the point, what does his maid see that is going on in his mind? Because of course, she's the only one who we are granted access to what she's thinking. We don't actually know what he's experiencing, but only know what she thinks he's experiencing. What does she see him? What, what, what is it about his experience that so bothers her? If, if you can kind of put this picture together without necessarily specifying whether it's physical or emotional. What do you see? Let's go back to the story for a minute. Well, I think that uh, we're invited to see him taking his fill-in on and off and on and off. And um, the um, A, the physical pain, be be the the shame of it. Oh, I really have to uh, take this these uh, filling off, and g God knows how many times he might be he might be ill, and he might have uh, 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 stomach problems. Uh, so um, I I think that taking off the filling captures both the physical and the anguish. What is it about and taking the embarrassment? So the the embarrassment. Um, notice the emphasis on, on um, the frequency of it, right? He's constantly going, taking off, putting on, taking off, putting on. There's a disruptiveness to the, 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 the phenomenon of having to do this. And I want to suggest, yeah, Michelle. First of all, the thing leads off by saying on the day of his death, so you already right. know. So it's like spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, he's at the end stage, and everybody knows it. I mean, it, you know, it's it's the end is soon, and also you could say, you know, the Yehuda Nasi knows how uh, important like, that it's wrong to take Tefillin into the outhouse or whatever the situation is there. He could have chosen to not put the tefillin back on. But the fact, you could say that he is choosing to put them back on again and again, no matter how difficult this is, he's not so quick to let go either. Fair enough. There, 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 there's a sense of Rabbi Hudanasi being torn himself. Right. Taking off, putting on, taking off, putting on. There's a sense of his, his identity almost being torn in two mirroring the, the, the image of, of his soul being in this kind of cosmic tug of war. Daniel, what came, to my, sorry, what came to mind for me was that Adam Nivra B'Tselem Elohim. So the, the dignity of that is something that's like a basic concept, I think. The, the, the notion of God, man being created in the image of God is fascinating here because of course, according to Midrash, God wears tefillin which is bizarre, but, 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 but potent, a potent image, because if God is wearing tefillin and putting on the tefillin is taking the image of God, and of course, going to the bathroom is something very human. Right. So again, in this image of taking and putting on, taking off, putting on, there's, there's a sense that his soul is being torn into between the human and between the divine. Um, one of the things that we're going to see in terms of discussions of dignity is the sense that dignity as a, as as a as the opposite of suffering in some sense is really about a definition and a sense of self okay and, and i think that may be the best way after reading through countless articles on dignity and trying to figure out how best to capture a sense of dignity in in a sentence or in one one um 
in, 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 in a phrase, um, is that dignity is really about, um, is really a dignity and suffering are both about, uh, a, 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 the, are both kind of positioned on the axis of selfhood or personhood. Dignity, of course, is a sense of being a person. It can be about being a specific kind person. It can be about being a religious person. It can be about being an independent person, about being an important person. But there's a sense of self that is critical to a sense of dignity. Dignity can also be of many different flavors in terms of whether it's the individual, whether it's the society, but dignity is about identity. Dignity is about how we see ourselves and about how other people see us. One of the things that dignity is not about, okay, and here I, th I think this is equally important in terms of defining dignity, dignity is not about life. Life exists as a separate value. Life exists as a separate concept. And dignity, whatever it is about, is not about the bare fact of life. And sometimes dignity can be in conflict with life, as in this case. So I'm going to draw a, another arrow here. The dignity and life, the, see, the, here's where the arrows are not fully, exp, not expressive enough. I, I, I don't mean to say that dignity is, is as opposed to life, right? Life, life is kind of important. Um, but, but dignity captures the sense of selves that go beyond the basic needs of our, the, 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 the basic fact of our life. Um, if you look at the way that dignity is brought up in contemporary political discourse, dignity goes beyond the basic needs, or, or maybe it's about the basic needs, but it's not about life per se. It's not about the basic fact that we deserve, that, that every human being has a right to life. It might, dignity might capture uh, what, what was uh, termed in the, in, in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness, right? It might be about liberty, though I think liberty maybe has more to do with agency and choice, okay? But dignity is about a sense of self that goes beyond the basic fact of our life. Suffering, on the other hand, uh, and, and we will hopefully see some texts that ground this a little more, but if you're familiar with some of the theoretical literature on suffering, um, the, the key text here is by a scholar named Elaine Scarry, uh, now at Harvard, who wrote a really fascinating and groundbreaking paper uh, or book actually, um, talking about, uh, this was when Amnesty International was, was uh, in the 1970s, uh, was bringing the issue of suffering to the fore as an international moral concern. Um, and they gathered evidence on the use of torture. Uh, this is right, of course, uh, during and right after Vietnam. Uh, the use of torture by, uh, by otherwise democratic and presumably rights-abiding governments. Um, and, and, and Amnesty International gathered all this data. And then Elaine Scarry, took, uh, a, who, who was a professor of literature, took a, a, a very kind of theoretical perspective on the notion of suffering being experienced by somebody who's being tortured and talked about the way that torture denies a person's sense of self and destroys a person's sense of self. She talks, for example, about the fact the way that the way that that, that torture um, um, uh, destroys people's ability to speak, destroys people's ability to formulate uh, coherent thoughts and to express them, which is, of course, a critical sense of, of of what it means to be a person, to be able to put thoughts into words. 
um, so, so suffering in its many different guises and many different manifestations is maybe in the most basic sense, a destruction of the self and a rending of one's sense of self. Um, now, of course, that can get complicated because not every experience of suffering destroys a person's sense of self. If you think about, um, you know, again, something that we should never have to experience, somebody experiencing martyrdom, right? Somebody who, who, um, um, who can, uh, can attach meaning to the suffering that they're experiencing. Uh, take a less religiously charged example um, that, that my wife brings up. Uh, and of course, I have no personal experience in most of you, uh, some of you have, well, um, a woman in labor, right? Um, my wife, uh, after having one uh, uh, unpleasant experience with an epidural, decided she never wanted to do it again and, um, and took upon herself for her own, out of her own free will and for her own uh, physical well-being, uh, to do natural labor for all of the rest of, uh, of, of our children. Um, she ascribed meaning to and willingly accepted the pain upon herself. And therefore, even as she was <laughs> screaming in agony, um, that that was something that we would not necessarily call suffering in the sense that it didn't rend her sense of self. It in fact gave her meaning. Here I am about to have a child. Um, but suffering in the sense that we'll talk about it is often suffering that rends one's sense of self and destroys one's sense of self. And therefore it's directly opposed to dignity. Okay. Um, Danny, if, I, if yeah. I just want to add that uh, having had uh, three children uh, naturally, um, I think one of the uh, distinctions of uh, suffering that has dignity is that there's a sense of purpose. Yes, yes. A sense of purpose and a sense of meaning, meaning. right? In other words, if you make suffering part of who you are and the, 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 the purpose that you have in the world and the meaning that, that, that you have give to this experience, then suffering and dignity don't have to be in opposition at all. Um, what gives a martyr dignity is the fact that they have suffered. Okay, but often that's not true. Um, and we'll talk about exactly when that's not true. And the last thing that we haven't really talked about uh, very much and I wanna kind of leave on the side for the moment is agency. Um, and for all of the other concerns that we've put up here or all of the other values, again, value not in a positive or negative sense, but simply in a concept that we can attach positive or negative value to, all of the values that we put up here, suffering, life and dignity, um, all of those are the object of our concern when we're dealing with end-of-life patients. The one that is in our, the, 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 the one that is about the subject, or that can be about the subject, the person who's actually making the legal decision or rendering the legal decision, is agency. Okay? Um, Rabbi Hutan, as he's made in the story, is able to make a choice. She does make a choice, and her choice has certain uh, consequences. Okay. Um, agency, therefore, is going to be the focus of a lot of our, uh, a, a lot of our attention, um, both in terms of our ability as the bystanders, as the caregivers, to take action and to provide or not provide for a patient in certain circumstances. Choice is going to be even more weighted because choice can be both about the caregiver's experience and also about the patient's experience. 
are we giving the patient agency to choose his or her course of treatment? Do they feel like we are respecting their wishes? Do we feel like we're treating this person like a full person as opposed to a, an object of our care? Okay, so agency is, is, is going to be the focus of a lot of our attention and we're gonna to have to talk about how agency interacts with each of these three other, uh, each of these three other things on the board. Okay, um, we don't have so much time left, but I do wanna just take a break for questions, comments, uh, additional thoughts before we move on. Yeah, Michelle. So I was about to type this, but it, it kind of a fascinating thought given, you know, I've been involved and I'm sure many people in this uh, class have been in advanced uh, directives conversations, but maybe Rav Yehuda designated his maid to be his healthcare proxy in case <laughs> he couldn't speak for himself because he knew his students wouldn't do what he really wanted them to do. There, there is an interesting question, of course, what, what their relationship is like. Um, they don't interact all that often. They do interact in certain cases. Um, she, she has quite a mouth on her um, and, and is quite a feisty character and, and one would not have a hard time imagining him doing something like that if, if that concept existed. Um, yeah, interesting. Okay, um, let's dive right into the next uh, source or two, uh, which which interact with this one in in uh, in a slightly strange way, but at least it will give us uh, the, the a full base on which to build uh, when we uh, when we meet again next week and delve into some of the more uh, more uh, practical uh, practical sources. Uh, so let's look together again at uh, the text file. Okay, um, we're now leaving the story behind and getting into some technical legal sources, but even these as we're gonna see are not quite as technical as legal, legal as we would expect. So the Talmud Bavli Nidarim, tractate Nidarim 40a says as follows. When Rodimi came to Babylonia, he stated, Rodimi is a scholar who traveled back and forth from Israel to Babylonia. Often when he came to Babylonia, hence he's quoting the Babylonian Talmud, he's quoting something that he learned in the land of Israel. He said, anyone who visits the sick causes him to live and anyone who does not visit the sick causes him to die. Bikur Cholim, visiting the sick is a, uh, is a very important mitzvah, is a very important commandment in the Torah. And Rabdimi, in order to underscore the importance of this says, if you visit the sick, you cause them to live. And if you don't, it's so bad that you're causing them to die. Wow. Um, first of all, when we say visiting the sick, uh, visit is an interesting word. Visit nowadays we take to mean dropping in for a quick visit, for a quick stop. But of course, in, in old English, what does visit mean? Bestow. Sorry? Um, bestow something like the... Uh, you can uh, visit, um, um, yeah, to, to give over in a way. To give over something, right? As a permanent gift, right? To bestow something, to visit something on someone means to give it to them as a, as a permanent gift. When you, as a person, visit with someone or visit someone, it means you go and you stay there. You sit by the patient's bedside and in, in, in a constant state of visiting, not a, there's not a discrete action of visiting. The state is called visiting with someone. So that is almost certainly what is meant by bikur cholim. Bikur not in the sense of the visit that we use it nowadays, 
um, but visit in the sense of being with them on a constant basis. Just a, 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 a footnote, uh, but, but something that I think may be important to our understanding of this passage. So that's Rev. Dimi's statement. The Talmud is a little taken aback by that. It's kind of harsh. How does he cause this, right? Really, if you don't visit with them, you cause them to die? So it means I have to run around and visit every sick person all the time, or I have to stay with every sick person all the time? If you say that one who visits prays that he should live, well, one who doesn't visit is because if he prays that he should die, is it plausible to say that? Okay, if you say that somebody who's visiting with the sick is praying for them, right? Praying for them when they visit quickly, praying them when they visit on a constant basis, that I understand, that you're praying for them to live. But wait, if there's an absence of praying, right? If I'm not visiting with them, that means I'm not praying for them. I'm not sitting by their bedside saying to Hillam or doing some other act of, of religious action to, to, to keep them tethered to this world. Uh, am I causing them to die? There's an absence of action there, but not a positive causing them to die, right? So why does Rathimi say anyone who doesn't visit causes them to die as if the absence of the action constitutes a, 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 an actual negative thing, something that I, a bad thing that I've done? Is the question clear? Says the Talmud, rather explained it as follows. Anyone who doesn't visit the sick neither prays that he should live nor prays that he should die. Oh, there are three possibilities here. You can go visit the sick and pray that they live. You could also visit the sick and pray that they die. He didn't mention that. He didn't actually mention anything about prayer. The Talmud assumes that there's prayer somewhere in here in your act of visiting. What else are you doing while you sit by your bedside other than you're not reading a novel, you're not, you're not doing the crossword puzzle. You're, you're, you're presumably actively, emotionally or religiously engaged in their, in, their, in their state of sickness. So presumably you're praying. Um, but now raises the possibility that maybe you're praying that they live, maybe you're praying that they die. What's the worst thing that you can do though, according to Ravdimi? Not pray at all, right? To not be engaged at all is the worst thing that you could do. That's shocking, okay? This passage in the Talmud is a shocking passage because we thought that it was simply a matter of life or death and that life is better than death. And now the Talmud is saying to us, no, there are three values here. There's life, death, and, and apathy. And life may be better than death, presumably, but death is better than apathy. That, in a sense, is, is, is a really startling statement and that's gonna have major impact when we go forward from this, from this source and try to, draw, um, try to draw conclusions from it. Um, okay, is that clear? We're still talking about prayer, okay? We're not talking about anything more sophisticated or more uh, physical or more practical than prayer. Maybe you think prayer is practical, but there's a certain impractical dimension to it in the sense that you're not actually physically engaged with them. There's a sense in which this passage is, is implicitly drawing on the previous story in the sense that there are two options to pray for somebody to live or to die and then there is that in-between space that nobody occupies in the story, but Rav Dimi saying is the worst thing of all. The worst thing of all is not to be engaged at all. Okay? Let's just briefly look at what the Ran, amid the medieval commentator Rav Nisim of Girona says about this passage. How could it be that apathy is the worst thing of all? Neither praise that he should live nor praise that he should die. 
It seems to me this is what the text means. There are times that one should pray the sick person should die. For instance, if he is suffering greatly from his illness and cannot bear to live any longer. As we see in Ktubot 104a, which is the story that we read. And therefore it states, the one who visits the sick to help him live through his prayers, since prayer is more necessary to preserve life. But one who does not visit him, not only doesn't help him live, but even when his death would be beneficial, doesn't help him die either. In what sense is apathy the worst thing? Because sometimes, maybe most of the time, it's worth praying that somebody live. But there are times that you want to pray that somebody die, i.e. when they're suffering. The worst thing to do is not pray either way, is to not be engaged at all. In other words, you always should be engaged with whatever this person needs. It may be life, it may be death, but both of those values, being actively engaged, making sure they get what they need, the worst thing of all is apathy, is not being involved at all, okay? This already, with Iran, putting these two texts together is already drawing out the moral of the story. And therefore it's going to be a central text as we go forward and consider some of the more practical dimensions to this, uh, to, to, to this area of halakha. Um, but most fundamentally, the Iran is filling in uh, that gap in, in the chart that we drew, uh, which is he's talking about agency, right? In other words, action, for the run is the most important thing of all. To do something, to be engaged and to be an agent in caring for this patient is critical um, uh, because the worst thing, because what Dimi is getting at is that the worst thing to do is not to be engaged and to simply let nature take its course. Okay, we'll stop here. Um, and as I said, next time we will draw out some of the, the technical implications of this. Um, but but the, the the framework that provide that these stories provide uh, that we've that we've drawn out here and maybe I'll try to tinker with this and, and present it to you in a, in a slightly cleaned up fashion next time um, is is going to be really critical because these four values or these four concepts suffering life dignity and agency are going to keep coming up in different combinations and and and, and with different implications for all of the various uh, topics that we're going to be addressing in this class. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to see all of you, uh, new and old places. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Next week. Okay. Bye, stay well.